I'm putting every single ounce of who I am into every single book that I write. So y'all know what to expect. The blackest books you have ever read <laughs> from yours truly. Derek Barnes isn't just writing about black kids. He's writing directly to them as sincerely as he possibly can. But to be sincere means to be vulnerable, which is a skill he learned from some of his favorite writers of all time, musicians. The writers that we love the most are the ones that are able to be the most vulnerable and able to make us feel things. I think listening to a lot of R&B music early on uh, when I was a kid kind of allowed me to tap into that, you know, my writing. Derek is the award-winning author of beloved picture books, Crown, and Ode to the Fresh Cut, and The King of Kindergarten. He's won the Ezra Jack Keats Book Award, the Newbery Honor, the Coretta Scott King Award, among so many others. More recently, he earned a National Book Award honor for the graphic novel, Victory Stand, Raising My Fist for Justice. The man has earned some flowers, and surely there are more to come. In this episode, Derek shares about how music inspired him to write, about how his idols taught him never to compromise his voice as a Black man, and his theory about the quality of music and its connection to our classrooms. He also kind of raps for us, which is fun. My name is Jordan Lloyd Bookie, and this is The Reading Culture, a show where we speak with authors and illustrators about the ways to build a stronger culture of reading in our communities. We dive into their personal experiences, their inspirations, and why their stories and ideas motivate kids to read more. Make sure to check us out on Instagram for giveaways at The Reading Culture Pod and subscribe to our newsletter at thereadingculturepod.com forward slash newsletter. All right, on to the show. Let's start when you were younger, like where you grew up and sort of what your early life was like. Well, my family is from the Delta of Mississippi, and they were part of that great migration of Black people moving north and moving west just to find jobs and uh, escape the terror of racism and white supremacy. And my folks stopped in Kansas City, Missouri, so that's my place of birth. I always describe myself as a Midwest Southern boy. Spent a lot of summers in Mississippi. I'm all Midwest boy, Kansas City, pickup trucks, jeans, boots, football, snowball fights. Grew up in a single parent household. My mother, she just has a high school education. She was a CNA pretty much my whole childhood. She was a nurse, worked in nursing homes, raised me and my brother, Anthony, who's my hero. I fell in love with words very young. I guess, you know, when I was in preschool, I was reading on elementary school level. Got me tested. I was in a gifted program pretty much my whole early education career, all the way up until high school. I just fell in love with words and started my writing, my illustrious writing career in the fifth grade. That was a very pivotal year for me. What happened in fifth grade? Well, two things happened. I was diagnosed with type 1 diabetes. Oh, I know. That was rough, having to cut out all the sweets in my diet. God, when you were in fifth grade. Fifth grade, having to take four insulin shots a day. Looking back, it has really taught me discipline and structure, and I exercise daily. I married a uh, vegan, so I eat pretty clean. It just keeps me sharp, I think. The second thing that happened was I fell in love with hip-hop music. My brother, even though we were in the Midwest, he had a lot of East Coast buddies from New York and Philadelphia, so they would always give him mixtapes. So I always heard stuff before everybody else did, like the new LL Cool J, new 
Eric B and Rakim, Jazzy Jeff and the Fresh Prince. And I just fell in love with hip hop music and being from Kansas City, it's one of the birthplaces of jazz music. My mother took us to a lot of live shows, R&B, jazz, blues. And I remember I used to copy lyrics from like liner notes, you know, from albums. You can see the albums up on my, my wall back there. And I used to copy a lot of Stevie Wonder, you know, Roberta Flack. I wanted to be like these modern day poets. My fifth grade teacher, Miss Shelby, recognized how much I love hip hop music and how hip hop is just a child of poetry. So she introduced us to all the writers from the Harlem Renaissance, you know, Nella Larson and County Cullen and Langston Hughes I fell in love with his work. It's one of my homeboys. He's from Missouri, from my home state. So in the fifth grade, I studied everything that he wrote. So you listen to Stevie, you listen to Roberta Flack, and then hip-hop, you're listening to... I said Roberta Flack's the first woman I fell in love with. We would get up on Saturday mornings and, and clean, and my mother would have her albums on, and she just sounds like an angel to me. What's your jam for her? Like, if you're going to play something, what, what are you going to? So my favorite song of hers is That's No Way to Say Goodbye. So, you know, when we get off, you have to check that out. I love that song, man, so much. There's no way to say goodbye. Killing Me Softly, obviously. All of her songs with Donny Hathaway, but her first album was a classic too, so. And I heard you were a big Prince fan. Love Prince so much, man. But, you know, when I mentioned, you know, the musicians that I like, I almost never mentioned Prince because I guess I'm being interviewed about children's books. And Prince really, at 9 to 11, really uh, made me feel naughty. <laughs> Prince will do that. Yeah, but also it was a lot of freedom, you know, in his music. Here, here is a a black man who is a prodigy, really. Taught himself how to play all these instruments, and he was very open about his sexuality. Yeah, there was no other artist like him that was effeminate in a lot of ways, but he was very, very open about the way he felt about love and you know women. Just very free, and for a young black artist, you know, seeing somebody put themselves out in the world that way. It makes you feel like I, I can be myself too. I can write about what I want to write about. I can sing about what I want to sing about. So Prince, you know, provided me with a lot of freedom. Do you teach that to your kids? Do your kids know? Yeah, I, you know, in a subliminal way. And I think it's important that we listen to their music too. I think we get into this uh, ageism type war with our children and talking about how horrible their music is. But you have to understand why they are into it. A lot of it is group think too. Like they maybe listen to certain artists because everybody else listens to them. I do try to listen to their music. And when they're in my car, it's just my music. I, I do give them a chance to play their music. But I just, you know, ever since they were babies, we exposed them to a lot of music, jazz, world music. My wife listens to a lot of Afrobeat, a lot of African music. She's a West African dancer. So they, they pretty much heard everything. Okay, so music from today with an open mind. I got that. What about the hip-hop of today, like given the impact that the genre had on you as a kid? You know, the level of hip-hop music has changed and there's a direct correlation to the emphasis that our current education system puts on, you know, language arts and like a real sincere effort to really focus on language and the richness of language and the huge array of talented writers, we don't have that anymore. Like I said, I was, I was in elementary school and high school in the 80s and the 90s and I had a lot of great teachers. It was the, the tail end of the civil rights era. 
I was able to, like when I heard of Rakim, I was able to appreciate he was the, one of the first MCs to use inner rhyme instead of that A-B pattern. So instead of saying like, I went to the store and got me a drink, sat on the curb so that I could think. That's that A-B pattern. But Rakim was able to put rhymes in between those spaces. I take seven MCs, put them in the line, add seven more brothers who think they can rhyme. They had to take seven more before I go for mine. Now that's 21 MCs ate up at the same time. I was able to recognize that because of the literature that we were reading and the different structure of the poetry stanzas. Like you really put value into that. So even like, you know, people marvel at, you know, the Wu-Tang Clan, but you can tell they had great English teachers because the language is so complex. Their uh, rhyming patterns are so complex. And when you hear today's MCs, it's, it's something beneath the simple A-B pattern. They don't even have a vocabulary. They don't have a extensive vocabulary to use. Yeah. <laughs> it's just... Yeah. A, it, That's sad, a very... In, it is a really interesting take on it. But let's get back to your early writing. And you mentioned that your, quote, career began in fifth grade. So what was the story that you wrote about? I had just finished watching Lady and a Tramp. So I wrote a story about these dogs traveling across the country looking for a magic bone that was going to save the world. Yeah. I discovered my superpower that day that I can use the English language and my imagination to captivate people. I discovered a skill that my peers didn't have. I was able to make things appear where nothing was there, you know, just out of thin air be able to tell stories and uh, craft and create characters. So I started writing everything after that. More poems, more short stories, more raps, love letters, everything. Anything I can get my hands on. <laughs> Were you a romancer with your... <laughs> I was, I was. <laughs> I, learned, I learned how to talk to girls early, yeah. you know, especially in middle school and high school. And really, a, a lot of it is listening to a lot of R&B music and studying those lyrics and it really... The writers that we love the most, I think this is the case for all of us, the writers that we love the most are ones that are able to be the most vulnerable and able to make us feel things. I think listening to a lot of R&B music early on uh, when I was a kid kind of allowed me to tap into that, you know, my writing. So you knew kind of early on, you knew you wanted to write. I think a lot of it was I didn't see anybody. I mean, obviously I knew about Walter Dean Myers and writers at a distance, but there were no black male writers that were tangible, that were accessible to me. So that, that wasn't even a possibility. The only thing, I, I just love writing and I had kept a lot of spiral notebooks and just wrote and created characters. And Always poetry or like always in verse or more prose? I always wrote a lot of free verse. I, You know, to be honest with you, I didn't write a lot of verse until I started working at Hallmark Cards. August of 1999, I was hired as the first black man in the history of Hallmark Cards to be a creative copywriter. Wow. And it was like being in graduate school. I met so many talented painters, artists, lettering artists, writers, obviously. Yeah. You know, it was the first time I felt like I was around my type of people on a daily basis, other creatives. And I got healthcare, which my mother was really proud of me. Do you remember some of the first cards that you worked on? I did everything. I did mahogany. I did every holiday. Excuse me. Was mahogany happening before there were black copywriters? Yeah. You know, Interesting. they had, <laughs> it was crazy. They, <laughs> sometimes they had an all white, so they may have black illustrators, but they were white writers. And so say if we were working on Valentine's Day, it was really tripped me out. Like the first project was Valentine's Day. 
It was mahogany. And when, when we got done, so say they would need like 12 new cards and there'd be like maybe four, five illustrators, maybe three writers, and they would have a sheet and tell us what we need. So it had these categories. We would divide them and I would work with like one illustrator and I have like two of those cards. And when the meeting was over with, they had a table with all these black resources like Jet Magazine, black movies, because it was mostly white right. writers, you know? Right. It was just myself and it was another lady, Sharon. She was really sweet to me, uh, still is. And then while I was there, I think they hired like three more black women, but that was about it. That's how they were like, here, get to know black people, read these magazines. Yes. <laughs> Talented writers, but from a cultural standpoint, you know, it, they need a little... A little help. <laughs> Hot from the creative crucible of the Hallmark Writers Room, Derek's first two books, Stop, Drop, and Chill, and The Lowdown, Bad Day Blues, both came out in 2004. But earning a living as an emerging author proved to be a challenge. We were broke. And if you name it, I probably did it down there if it was, if it was legal. What kind of stuff? From 2003 to 2005, substitute teaching. I did real estate. I worked for a company called Iron Mountain. I drove trucks. Uh, I did a lot of temp jobs. I did landscaping. And when I came home, I was working on my first novel, which came out in 2007, The Making of Dr. True Love. I finished it. And a month later in 2005, Hurricane Katrina happened. We were able to escape Hurricane Katrina, move back to Kansas City, Missouri, and uh, Making a Dr. True Love came out in 2007. That was my third book. And then in 2008, I signed a chapter book series with Scholastic for a series called Ruby and the Booker Boys. It was for four books. Ruby. Yeah, so I had seven books out. 2010, my first middle grade novel entitled We Could Be Brothers. Scholastic published that. I'm thinking I'm about to be the next Walter and, and be filthy rich. And, uh, man, I went like seven years without any books uh, being published. But while he struggled with his own career, Derek remained connected to the growing community of Black writers and artists around him. Even when times were slow, Derek stayed committed to a fresh vision for Black children's books, focused on genuine 21st century characters and experiences. He told us that a lot of the inspiration to do so came from one of our former guests, the legend that is Kwame Alexander. Kwame Alexander really kicked the door down, I think, for Black male children's book authors to write in our voice, in our vein, and just really be authentically Black and have success. I mean, he, he went through a lot, too, before Crossover, you know, not being able to be published. Crossover was turned down a gazillion times. But when that book hit, I think it really opened up the doors because, you know, in a lot of these houses at that time, and I think it's got a little bit more diverse, a lot of the acquisition editors are a lot of gatekeepers. I thought I was writing authentically Black books. I wanted to tell Black stories, but it's one feeling that. So we were shopping a book about a 10-year-old Miles Davis who had a magical trumpet and he was fighting the heat wave, and it was in uh, East St. Louis. And that that book got turned down by everybody. It, it was two editors said they, one said they didn't know who Miles Davis was, and the, and another one didn't think the book would resonate with you know with anyone. So what? Yeah, it was, it was crazy. You know, 
I started paying attention to American Library Association Awards when I was at home, Mark. And one thing I noticed was all the books that won, that were written by Black authors or Black illustrators, they all are slavery or runaway slaves. And I said, man, if I ever get a chance to write beyond these two early reader books, I'm going to write books where Black characters are similar to the boys that I knew when I was growing up or similar to my boys. And Black men, you know, to me, we are cocky. We are, we have a lot of swag. And, you know, with all the jobs I've had, I see black men from all walks of life. I see them in the projects. I know uh, black judges. Another job I had was outreach for the Kansas City Public Library. And we went to the juvenile detention center twice a week. And it was full of black and brown boys. And we did writing exercises. And, And some of the most brilliant children I've ever met were incarcerated. So I was like, if I ever get a chance to write these stories, man, they're not going to be in the projects. They're not going to be, I don't know, just these very noble characters that don't have any personality. They can't be multifaceted like most human beings are. I want my protagonists to be real black boys, you know. And so I think Kwame really kicked down the doors for that. I love him for that. In 2016, that dedication paid off. That was the year that another Black artist would inspire the story that changed Derek's life, Crown, an ode to the fresh cut. Man, I I wrote like 30-some-odd books between 2010 and 2017. Just couldn't get any of them published. So what ended up happening was we moved to Charlotte in 2014, still broke. I was approaching 40, 40 years of age. I didn't know what what was going to happen. A lot of depression really down, trying to raise these four boys the best I could. I, I think that's the reason why we're so close, because I poured a lot of myself into them. And staying up late, working on books that nobody wanted. So 2016, I was on Facebook, and I saw a post by an illustrator named Don Tate. Yeah, I love his work. Yeah, and he posted a picture of his teenage son, who's now in law school. It was a profile picture of him, and he had these designs in his head. It was a, a beautiful sketch. And it's a part of my presentation now when I talk about Crown. So I reached out to him and asked him if he could do that like 10 more times with different hairstyles. And I would write poems to each sketch about how much we love our sons, how much we hold our boys up. And he thought it was a great idea, but he was actually getting paid. He had deadlines. I didn't have anything at the time. But um, I reached out to Gordon and Gordon was going through some financial issues as well. He actually lives here in Charlotte. He said, yeah, and there are no mistakes in this universe. Gordon C. James was uh, meant to illustrate Crown and Ode to the Fresh Cut, and I'll I'll be forever grateful for him doing such an amazing job. And the book came out 2016, 2018, man. I never received a star review in my life. We had like five or six of them. I never won an award in my life. We won like eight major children's book awards. And uh, everything just opened up for me. That was my 12th book. My master and myself had quite a number of differences. He found me unsuitable to his purpose. My city life, he said, had had a very pernicious effect upon me. I had almost ruined me for every good purpose and fitted me for everything which was bad. I had lived with him nine months, during which time he had given me a number of severe whippings, all to no good purpose. He resolved to put me out, as he said, to be broken. And for this purpose, he let me for one year to a man named Everett Covey. 
Mr. Govey had acquired a very high reputation for breaking young slaves, and this reputation was immense value to him. I lived with Mr. Covey one year. During the first six months of that year, scarce a week passed without his whipping me. I was seldom free from a sore back. My awkwardness was almost always his excuse for whipping me. I was somewhat unmanageable when I first went there, but a few months of this discipline tamed me. Mr. Covey succeeded in breaking me. I was broken in body, soul, and spirit. My natural elasticity was crushed. My intellect languished. The disposition to read had departed. The cheerful spark that lingered about my eye died. Mr. Covey seemed now to think he had had me and could do what he pleased, but at this moment from whence came the spirit, I don't know, I resolved to fight. And suiting my action to the resolution, I seized Covey hard by the throat, and as I did so, I rose. He held on to me and I to him. My resistance was so entirely unexpected that Covey seemed taken all aback. He trembled like a leaf. This gave me assurance and I held him uneasy, causing the blood to run where I touched him with the ends of my fingers. We were at it for nearly two hours. Covey at length let me go, puffing and blowing at a great rate, saying that if I had not resisted, he would not have whipped me half so much. And the truth was that he had not whipped me at all. I considered him as getting entirely the worst end of the bargain, for he had drawn no blood from me, but I had from him. My long crushed spirit rose, cowardice departed, bold defiance took its place, and I now resolved that however long I might remain a slave in form, the day had passed forever when I could be a slave in fact. I did not hesitate to let it be known of me that the white man who expected to succeed in whipping must also succeed in killing me. The range of human experience is, well, extensive. There are agonizing pains and fervent loves, exhilarating joys. The list goes on. Derek's idols throughout his life all embraced their blackness and also the many other facets of their personhood, of their individual human experiences. From pop icon Prince to rap virtuoso Rakim. The searing words that Derek just read are from Frederick Douglass's memoir, Narrative of the Life of Frederick Douglass, an American Slave. And I was a little surprised at first that Derek chose it, since we had talked mostly about contemporary Black idols like Prince and Walter Dean Myers. But the common echo, that of Black men sharing their raw experiences with unflinching honesty, resounds in this passage from 1848, just as it does in the lyrics from 1988. Reading Frederick Douglass was a turning point for young Derek Barnes. You read that in fifth grade. Ten years old, reading that. Ten years old. Yeah, I was like, whoa. <laughs> That's mind-blowing when you're that. I mean, it's mind-blowing right now. And to just be able to recall that with such elegance, mm. with something so vicious and harsh that happened to you. And he was 16 years old when that happened. I thought that was powerful to be able to write, which I think is uh, passed down as well, the trauma of slavery and the effects of white supremacy, those those kind of things are kind of embedded in us. I think that was embedded in me. It has allowed me now to do what I do, which at the time was very jarring to read what he had gone through. This is one of Americans' greatest thinkers, diplomats of all time. And to actually visualize him taking lashes and having broken bones and being sent to someone that was meant to not only break his body, but break his spirit. And how that section ended was very 
it was encouraging to me, which led me down a rabbit hole to learn more about slave revolts. If you just take slavery in this educational system at its face value, you would think that slaves were happy-go-lucky and they were happy to be in their place, but there were so many slave revolts, as you can imagine. So when I, I remember reading that section, it made me encouraged. I wasn't thinking about that at the time, but now that I look back at it and look at what I do now, I consider myself a uh, activist. I consider myself a freedom fighter. I want to write books that send children down those rabbit holes and have them think about their place in the world and take note of their God-given abilities and, and what God has given them to use in order to change their environment, in order to be brave and uh, say things that other people may not say, in order to make our world a better place, not just our country, but everybody has the ability to do that. I didn't know that at the time when I read this passage, why I was so intrigued by it, that I want to be a freedom fighter. You said you feel like you're a freedom fighter. That's what your job is. Most definitely, yeah. I always say that I write to Black children, but I write for all children. I make it a point to tell everyday slice of life stories like the kindergarten books I have, King, Queen of Kindergarten. They just so happen to have Black children. But I, I do write to, these are love letters to Black children because I grew up with a dearth of Black books. And this, I mean, it has gotten so much better. Everyone's, there are a lot more stories being told, but we still could tell more stories. But I was in Milwaukee and I had got off the plane and went straight to one of the schools I was supposed to present. I went to the wrong school. I called my driver up and told them to come back around. I need to go back to the other school. And while I was waiting at the door, I think he was in the third grade. He's a beautiful boy, blonde, blue-eyed. He had a, a Green Bay Packers jersey on, like Midwestern white boy from like casting. Yeah. <laughs> Came up to me. And he was like, Mr. Barnes, I'm sorry you have to go, but I just want to come up to you and tell you that you're one of my favorite writers. Oh. And I have all your books, man. And I'm looking at this child, I'm like, this is what it's all about. Like, this is what I want to happen. The fact that he reads my stories and he sees these beautiful black characters on it, but he's still able to see himself. He's still able to see himself. And also, he's not old enough to read books like Victory Stand, but he will read Victory Stand one day. And those books would take him down a rabbit hole. And he'll be able to unlearn any negative things that he's ever been taught about people of color, I, I didn't even say anything. I just gave him a hug, man. Wow. I gave him a hug and I just thanked him. I said, go back to class, man. <laughs> but that, that really moved me. It made me realize that I am um, doing what I'm supposed to be doing. That's incredible. That was Milwaukee? Milwaukee, yeah. It was, which was, it was really alarming too because like last, I think a year or two ago, I had a week-long amount of school visits in a suburb in Birmingham. They were canceled the superintendent said that there was a parent that was complaining about my books, that I was a rabble rouser. And the book they were talking about was I Am Every Good Thing. Oh, so, not Victory Stand? No, it was I Am Every Good Thing, which is crazy. <laughs> wow. You know, that was a lot of money. That was a whole week of school visits. Yeah. So I went after him. I, I reached out to every media outlet that I could, and they all responded back to me. And I was calling him out. I was trying to get up, interview and talk to this guy. I didn't feel like it was a parent. I felt like it was him and all of these wacky school boards across the country who are really doing their children a disservice. The country is getting blacker and browner and more biracial. And you are 
doing your kids a disservice by not allowing them to learn the history of these people, of different cultures. I feel sorry for the children, you know, in those spaces. They end up getting I Am Every Good Thing back on the New York Times bestsellers list, but I think artists, we have to go after these people. We have to go after these racist superintendents, school board members, governors even. I feel kind of uppity sometimes when other artists want me to get involved in band book type of consortiums. And I I am going to be a part of a few of those, but I just hate to label my books. I hate to label my own books banned books because they aren't banned books, you know? Right. And I think when you put that label on your own work, it kind of uh, stains it, you know, to me. We have to go after these people and not allow them to uh, do this, not only to us, but the things they're doing to these you know, children. Yeah. Pulling these books out of schools, books about LGBTQ relationships, issues, books about the history of racism, white supremacy, black history. We're going backwards. How does it feel to you to be able to tell those stories, to know there's like an audience? You have these people who want those stories now are hungry for those stories. They probably always have been, but I mean like in the industry, to know that you are able to tell those, to tell the story of Tommy Smith. Like how does that feel to know that you can have this power? When I was struggling, and I always tell this story about how I ended up writing Crown. Here, right in this, this is my office back here. You know, I got furniture and awards and everything is up. But this room used to be completely bare and nothing. And I used to sit in here and work on one of those 30 books that I wrote during my downtime. And this was maybe 2016 and solo. So it was like 11 during this time. He had just came in from outside and I was on the floor right there working on another book. He was eating an apple and he looked down at me. He was like, Daddy, you know what you should do? You should write the blackest book ever. They already not buying your books, so you might as well. And at that time, I was trying to write black versions of books. Like So during the whole Twilight era, I, I wrote like a black Dracula book. It was called Dracula Jones. I was trying to tap in with those right. gatekeepers. And what Solo reminded me of was... I have an audience that needs these books, that needs the stories of their lives. And I'm so grateful that he reminded me of that because, like I said, two weeks later, I wrote Crown, and Ode to the Fresh Cut. And so now I, I just really try to, like what he said, write the blackest, most authentic stories that I can write and hopefully write it in such a way that everyone can still see themselves through these characters, through the characters' experiences. Uh, We have so much in common. And I I think historically, for a good purpose and good reason, America has done its best to separate us and divide us, a lot of it for economic reasons. But we have so much in common. I travel all across this country, and I meet people in all walks of life, different socioeconomic uh, levels, and everybody wants to be respected and loved, and they want their children to have great education. People want health care. People want to be understood. Hopefully, I tap into that. That's what I tap into by being my authentic self. I'm so grateful that Solomon said that to me that day. Derek's entire career has been built around his passion for telling vulnerable and real stories about and for Black kids. Given how much he talks about how impactful his own idols were, I asked him what he wants his legacy to be. 
it's kind of the same way that I look at my heroes. You know, the reason why I love John Coltrane so much is because after beating uh, an addiction, he was able to realize that the artwork that he makes is directly connected to God. Like his music is a extension of what God wants from all of us. And that's for us to embrace the gifts that we've been given, to use them for good in, in order to change the world. I want to continue to get better as a writer. I want to continue to say things that other people may not say, tell the kind of stories and write the kind of books that I know are going to get to the hands of that little boy in you know, Wisconsin or that little boy in Jackson, Mississippi, or that little girl that lives in Los Angeles. I want to write the kind of books that may be the spark to change the way they see themselves and the way they see the world and send them down different rabbit holes so they could also join the ranks. We need as many good people as we possibly can in order to make this thing called life more you know, habitable. And hopefully I'm doing that with my work. So I got... 11, 12 more books to go. God willing, I, I may write more books beyond that. I'm putting every single ounce of who I am into every single book that I write. So y'all know what to expect. The blackest books you have ever read <laughs> from yours truly. Yes, we definitely know what to expect. But you said 12 more books. Can you share uh, more about that and what else is next for you? I'm on the contract to do 12 books right now. When that book comes out, that 12th book, I've been thinking about going back to school. I would like to get my PhD and teach African-American literature from a historic standpoint. But um, the books that are coming out this year, like I said, Who Got Game Basketball just came out January. I love those books, by the way. I have that. I have Thank that. you very much. Yeah. <laughs> Baseball and basketball, so good. Yes. Are they yes, really, or this is like, these books like do not exist. This needed to exist. Thank you very much. I'll start working on the football. That's the last book in the series, football book. I'll start working on that in the summer. But the Spanish version of I Am Every Good Thing comes out finally, oh. May. So that's going to be awesome. And then um, I have a picture book by a great illustrator named Shamar Knight uh, Justice. It's called The Brothers. And it's just an homage to my big brother and to older siblings and, and how much they show us the simplest things about just being a human being and, and being alive. But I just turned in a picture book about one of the experiences of one of the greatest artists, activists of all time, a gentleman named Dick Gregory. Yeah. Turned in the picture book I'm doing with his son. Oh, neat. Illustrated by the great Frank Morrison. Uh, I've been trying to work with Frank. Frank is a friend of mine. Uh, I turned in two books. Gordon James and I are contracted to do two more books. I just turned the second one in. The first one was a collection of 14 essays and 14 original poems. And the book is entitled Do It For The People, where I'm focused on African-American athletes throughout the history of America who have risked it all oh, to yeah. um, use their platforms. And many of them have paid for it. So that book is very powerful. I think Gordon's going to do a great job in just turning in a book of Black uh, folk tales. It's in picture book format, but it's a collection of like three stories and hopefully we can get a series going. And that's an homage to the great Virginia Hamilton. As you heard earlier, Derek considers himself a freedom fighter, a freedom writer, if you will. 
This was especially true with his book, Victory Stand, which tells the story of one of the most iconic moments at the intersection of sports and civil rights. For his reading challenge, Resistance and Resilience, Derek shares a list of fascinating real-life stories of freedom fighters, especially some that aren't as well-known. We talk about resistance and resilience. I just kind of combed through my library and I, I could have put like 50 books on here or 100. These were some of the first ones that uh, stuck out to me. Wilmington's Lie. When I first moved to North Carolina, one of the first things I, I was hell-bent on was learning the history of North Carolina and how important Wilmington was because after Reconstruction, North Carolina was the state that had the most black representatives in um, Congress. And there were so many communities around the country where black people after the Civil War and after slavery ended, you had communities that were thriving with black businesses and we were a part of the government and black uh, schools, prominent black you know, communities and they were all destroyed. Wilmington was one of them, destroyed by, you know, mostly white citizens. And it was okay by, you know, the government. I mean, a, a lot happened when the Union soldiers were were pulled from the South and they just kind of let us be. They just kind of left us to the wolves. And so I was always fascinated by that Wilmington story. So that was, that was probably one of the first books that I laid my eyes on when I went through here. You can find Derek's challenge, Resistance and Resilience, at thereadingculturepod.com, along with reading challenges from all of our past guests, including Kwame Alexander, Jacqueline Woodson, Katie Camillo, and many more. Today's Beanstack featured librarian is Connie Sharp, a librarian training and development specialist at Metro Nashville Public Schools. She told us about how her district utilizes Beanstack with community partnerships to encourage students to read. So we are really excited because not only has Beanstack been a great tool for our schools, but also it's helped to amplify some of our community partnerships. So one of our partners is Vanderbilt Athletics, and every year they sponsor two or three challenges for our students. And the latest one was Mr. C's Football Challenge. So students could read, listen to books, and record their uh, time spent reading or listening and earn badges. If they complete the challenge, they become Mr. C's Reading Club members. And all of the Reading Club members were given two free tickets to a Vanderbilt football game. So that was really exciting for our students. And they'll do different challenges throughout the year. We've had Mr. C's Baseball Challenge, Mr. C's Basketball Challenge. So we're really excited about that. And then not only are the students earning free tickets, but the winning school who has the highest percent of challenge completions through our district also wins a cookie party from Tiff's Treats. So it's a huge partnership that we are so grateful for. This has been The Reading Culture and you've been listening to our conversation with Derek Barnes. Again, I'm your host, Jordan Lloyd Bookie, and currently I'm reading Instructions for Dancing by Nicola Yoon and Chain Gang All-Stars by Nana Kwame Ajebrenya. If you enjoyed today's episode, please show some love and give us a five-star review. It just takes a second and it really helps. 
To learn more about how you can help grow your community's reading culture, you can check out all of our resources at beanstack.com. And remember to sign up for our newsletter at thereadingculturepod.com forward slash newsletter for special offers and bonus content. This episode was produced by Jackie Lamport and Lower Street Media and script edited by Josiah Lamberto Egan. Thanks for joining and keep reading. Keep reading.